take your sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the living God, and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you would, please. We have just gotten started in this incredible portion of God's Word. And as we come back to that today, I'm going to ask you to go to the back of the Gospel of John. Again, I know the text that we're going to come back to is right at the beginning in chapter 1, but I'd like you to turn to chapter 20 with me first of all. I have in my hand just a great commentary of a great uh, series of commentaries. Christ-Centered Exposition is the title of these. Of course, this is the one on the, on the Gospel of John. And the authors, dual authors in this particular one, uh, Matt Carter and Josh Redberg, have a quote in this book that I wanted to read to you. And it really is a follow-up of the first hour, so to speak. And I didn't plan that, but in Providence, I think it fits in very well to the first hour. Let me just say this. After the first hour, I'm really glad I'm preaching on Jesus today (laughs) because we are a focus of the gospel, and we are in the gospel of John, and we're going to focus on Jesus Christ, and God is going to be honored if we do so accurately with his word. Can you say amen to that? But they both make a statement. I don't know which one was writing it at this time, but they are talking about our present uh, spiritual culture context of, of our day-to-day and relating to spiritual things. And they label um, that present atmosphere in our country, our world, as what they call contemporary spirituality. And when he is talking about contemporary spirituality, he's describing it as not belief in an object or a person, but rather the idea of belief in belief. Now, what do do we mean by that? It's all centered around this particular quote that is in the book, and perhaps you've heard this kind of a, a statement made, and it goes this way. It doesn't matter who you believe or what you believe. All that matters is that you believe. Now, does that sound right? Are you being discerning right now? It doesn't matter who or what. It's just that you believe. Is that consistent with, with the Scriptures? So let me read you a quote next that he makes here, and he calls this again, there is a belief in belief, or we could say it another way. It doesn't matter what your faith is in. Just have, just have faith. Here's the quote. For 25 years, the high priest of this philosophy in the United States was Oprah Winfrey. She didn't care what you believed. She just wanted you to believe. She was convinced that if you believed something, your life would be improved. A few years ago, she had an atheist on her show. The atheist described the sense of wonder she experienced when she stood at the edge of the ocean. Here was Oprah's response to that. She said, quote, Well, I don't call you then an atheist. I think if you believe in the awe and wonder and mystery, then that's what God is to you. It's not a bearded guy in the sky 
Oprah was peddling a brand of spirituality that revolves around believing in belief. As long as a person has faith, he or she is fine. She ignores the object of faith. Now, does the Bible, does the Word of God, does the Apostle John have a problem with that? Well, listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever just believe. Am I right? No, what does it say? Whosoever, whoever believes what? In him. In him. That's the object of the belief. And then it says what? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. An object of one's belief based upon the Scriptures any other than the Lord Jesus Christ is empty belief according to the Bible. You say, well, Pastor Kevin, how can you say that? I'm not saying that. The book says that. That there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the object of your faith, my faith, is anything other than Jesus Christ, you remain in your sin and, according to John 3, under condemnation. John is the gospel of belief nearly a hundred times, remember? Believe, believe. But John doesn't leave it hanging. And that's why I asked you to come back to that key verse again, and then we'll go back to chapter 1. But in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, here is that purpose. Here is that main theme, isn't it? And remember, beloved, remember this. When you read the Gospel of John, that you may believe, and that believe you might have life. When you get to 1 John, he says, having believed that you would know it and have assurance of that. Bible gives us great assurance in the promises of God that we can not only have this life, but be assured of it. Okay, verse 30, 31. Look at it again. You probably got it underlined in your Bible. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then he gets to the next part, and that believing in him. In Christ, the promised one, king, son of God, same as God in nature, essence, and being, that you would believe these things and believing the truth about Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, why he came, what he accomplished in death, burial, and resurrection, and that believing those things, that you would have life and life eternal in his name. So come back to me, with me to chapter 1, and thank you for your patience in coming to that key passage again. But it's so important that we see that. And at the onset, what, what we call the prologue of John's gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, John is declaring in his good news, that is specifically who is Jesus, what Jesus is like. And he expresses him in verses 1 through 3. We looked at last week, but notice he uses that term, in the beginning was the, everybody say it, was the what? Was the Word. 
And we learn that that idea of the word has reference to the lagos as the original word. Was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In the Lagos, he is the source, he is the power, he is the wisdom, he is the ultimate cause of all things. He is everything that God is. God who was clothed in flesh. He is God that is incarnate to become flesh. So in verses 1 through 3, remember, he says, the beginning was the Word. When the beginning began, he already existed. He is eternal. He is eternal. But he is distinct from God. He was, the Word was with God. He is God the Son. Turn with me over to chapter 5. John develops these, all of these great themes. But he starts again. Let's get Jesus right over in chapter 5. Verse 17. 517. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling himself, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now over to verse 25. 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And John is emphasizing, likewise, he is the Son of God. He is eternal. He is distinct from God. Back to chapter 1. And with the word was God himself. He is identical in essence with God. I, what did he say? I and my Father are what? One, yes. And then he is the creator, likewise, of all things. Again, is he, he's saying that in verse 3, of all that was created, he made it. He was the agency of creation. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created. Through the agency of the second person of the glorious Trinity, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 4, and we come to verse 4 today. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the authority and originator of life. If he created all things, then life began where? In the beginning, with him. Theologians convey it in this manner. They say he is the cause, the ultimate cause, the uncaused cause of all things. All living things have life from him, ultimate cause of life, and life began with him. 39 times in John. John conveys Jesus as the life giver. Over in chapter 5, again, please. Chapter 5. Notice verse 38. 
5.38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Believe in Christ that you might have life. John 11 raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says what? I am the resurrection, say it with me, and the life. We already quoted in the first hour this morning, but we can do it again in this second hour, 14.6. We all know it. I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the, I am the life. All throughout the Gospel of John. John's purpose. Believe what? Believe who? In Christ. Not believe for the sake of belief, or not believe whatever you feel like believing in, or certainly not believing in yourself but believing and be anchored in him, who he is and what he's done. So John's whole purpose is, first, that you know who Christ is, second, that you believe in him, and third, believing that you would have life and life eternal, and even life abundant, present tense, with a right understanding of that. And notice again in verse 4, then John moves to the next major theme that he's going to drive home here and in the book as well, and that is this. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In fact, if I read on, you follow me. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light over and over again in these verses. Now we have life and now we have light. And in the Gospel of John, they're like two sides of the same coin. The opposite of life is death. Thank you. Three people got that. The opposite of life is death. The opposite of light is darkness. We are spiritually in darkness, come into this world because of sin and spiritual darkness. And because we are spiritually dead, we come to this world spiritually separated from God because of the fall, because of our, the reality we're born. We don't become sinners. We are sinners. And we do what we are. And we do it well. Amen to that? So we are spiritually dead and spiritually in darkness. And to those then who would ever face death, that sounds like all of us, he is life. To those who are in darkness, he is light. And when you believe upon Jesus Christ and you trust in him alone as the one who paid the penalty of your sin on that cross so that you could be reconciled to God, then you've passed from death, help me, into life. And you've passed from the dominion or the domain of spiritual darkness now into the domain of spiritual light. And when you're made alive in Jesus Christ, what are you alive to? God. God. Suddenly, when you are regenerated, the Spirit of God takes residence in your heart, and God, in regeneration, makes you alive to Him. And now you are living in a whole new and different realm of darkness. Now you begin to see things in this world, and yourself, and others, in light of who God is, and what the Word of God says, and the reality of eternal things. R.C. has a quote here 
with reference to the light and coming into the light. Sometimes people speak mockingly of those who are converted, saying they have seen the light. You ever heard that? In fact, there's even songs, I think, seen the light. But they're closer to the truth than they realize. For me, conversion was the point when the light went on. I love that. And I understood things I had not grasped before. Can you identify with that? You say, ah, I can't put the date on, but I can tell you that I've passed from one realm to the other realm, and God has turned the light on in my soul. And so he says in the fact of verse 4, and he was life, and the life was the light of men. If you're taking some notes this morning, that's the first he's asserting here with reference to Christ as this light. Psalm 119, 105, you know this one by heart. Thy word, the word of God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light changes everything, doesn't it? The light of life, of hope, in contrast to the darkness of sin and the darkness of death. Light changes, oh my. You know, a time that you've been somewhere, maybe you're camping and whatever, and it was cloudy, and so the stars, and you didn't see the stars and the reflection of the moon there, and you can't see the, your hand in front of your face. Or you've been in a room sometime, it's just total, absolute darkness. My grandpa and grandma in their farm, old farmhouse, they didn't have a basement. They had a cellar. Do you know what a cellar is? A cellar is a downstairs in an old farmhouse that has a dirt floor, and it doesn't have any windows. And in that cellar in Grandpa and Grandma's farmhouse, there were things stored down there that Grandma had canned or other things just stored, where it was cool in that cellar. There was a, uh, an old uh, chest freezer that was up on blocks and plugged in. Um, there was an old uh, washing machine that Grandma used, the kind gals, the kind where the the, the washer, and then she'd pull it out with a stick and just use it to put that clothing into those rollers. And then she would roll the thing to get the wa- Are you following me, gals, what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Some of you younger gals see some of the older gals, so you know what we're talking about. Now, I remember as I was looking back upon this, I was thinking about the fact that Grandma would have me come down. There were doors out of it, and one end of the cellar, they were those uh, double doors that would open up that you could walk out into the side of the of the house into the yard there and she would have me come down and she'd have me carry because all that wet stuff was heavy and she didn't have a dryer downstairs the dryer was outside and a, a line to put those clothes on to dry but when I got sent downstairs to get something out of the freezer and I was always the one who got sent because I was the last one on the totem pole grandpa and grandma and my uncle and then there was me I hated going in that cellar People have actually gone into that cellar and never come out of that cellar, I am sure of it. And when I would go down in there, I'd be doing this. I'm trying to find that string because there's one light there. When I grab that string, man, now I could see. But until that moment, total darkness, and I want to say to you, in the love of Jesus Christ, If you are not saved today, you are living in the realm of that darkness. And if you are saved, 
today, if you know this Christ as your own Savior today, and you're wondering about what is the problem in the world today, it's this problem, is that people are lost and they are living in spiritual darkness. And they need the light. They need the light of this truth. And when God saves you, he turns the, if I can say it this way, he turns the light on in your soul. And you begin to see everything different. And this is part of the wonder of what the Bible calls regeneration and becoming a new creation in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13 says, He, God, rescued us from the domain, that is the dominion, the realm of darkness. And praise God that he would do that. He is the light of men. He is the light of the world. And notice with me in verse 5 what he says next about the light. Taking notes this morning, I want to paraphrase it this way. He is reminding us that the light, who is the Lagos, who is Jesus Christ, is indestructible. Now, how do you get that, Pastor? Well, look with me at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. Some of our versions may say overcome, and frankly, personally, I would prefer that as a translation here, but I'm not a Greek scholar. But I think by the virtue of the context, in my opinion, that would be a better translation of this very common word, katalambano. The idea of the word oftentimes is to grasp something as, un- as to understand it. And, and if we move on in verse 11 of John's Gospel, chapter 1, we could apply that with reference to his coming to his own world, his own things, and they did not properly understand that he was the light of the world. Are you with me? But it also can mean, and I think the context desires this, in my opinion, and it is the idea of not overwhelm or overtake the light. That is, that the the light wins out, if I can say it this way, in the realm of darkness. And Jesus Christ, the light of the world, overcomes over or conquers the reality of the darkness in the world by virtue of who he is and what he has done. One person writes it this way, just even a small candle can drive the darkness out of a room, and the brilliant and glorious light of the Lord Jesus Christ will utterly destroy Satan's realm of darkness. And when he's stating here about the darkness did not overwhelm, or if I could even paraphrase, conquer the idea of light, it is reminding us, and John's going to dwell on this, that there is a perpetual conflict or struggle going on in the world and between Christ and all that he encounters in the gospel. A conflict, a struggle... And by the way, the world catches up on this because so often in in movies or whatever else, there is this conflict that's going on between darkness and what? Between darkness and light. And it is a true reality that's going on with, with reference to Christ and his coming in this world. And that's why when he encounters things like uh, the, the demons, as people p- possessed by demons, they cry out. They, they acknowledge who he is. 
Leave me alone. Why? Because of the power of the reality of, of God in flesh and as the light of the world. And this is true with reference to when you become a believer and you are brought into the realm of spiritual light and understanding and seeing things from an eternal perspective and God's perspective, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Then you begin to realize that this conflict is a conflict that goes on, takes place, even all around us in this world. Ephesians chapter 6. You get there, all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, now he's starting to, at the end of the chapter, he talks about this, what we call spiritual warfare, doesn't he? There's a spiritual battle going on, and it's for the hearts of men. And the God of this world is doing everything that he can to keep people in darkness and away from the light of the gospel. So in Ephesians chapter 6, familiar words, finally be strong in the Lord, verse 10, strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil for our struggle or warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness. It's the reality of it. And when you come to Christ, all of a sudden, your eyes of your heart are open to the reality of that, of, of that conflict that is going on all around us and for the hearts of men. And not to take the time to turn there this morning, but you notice there's no need for any lights in the New Jerusalem and in the description of heaven at the end of the revelation. Why? Because the light of the world is there. There is no darkness there. He is there. He is lighting all that the new Jerusalem will have in light. He is indestructible. Let me suggest something else that is true of the light, and we read those that reality in verses 6, 7, and 8. And I'm going to put that together as one lump. Let me read it again. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify, another form of the same word, about the light. Then he goes on, there was a true light which comes into the world. But I want you to notice that in verse 6, or ever, excuse me, verse um, verse 7, as a witness. And then he says again in verse 7, to testify or witness. And then again in verse 8, it's the same word used three times. You're familiar with that word. In the Greek, it's that word martyrios. But it's translated witness or to give testimony concerning something. And what is he talking about? He's saying the light well, third, for us this morning, God sent a witness to that light, and when he's talking about John, he's not talking about the Apostle John, he's talking about, everybody say it, the, John the, yeah, John the Baptist, this forerunner. We get over and later in the chapter, I'll read it in just a few moments, but he, 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 he moves to that after he finishes this profound truth about who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice it says in verse 5, 
excuse me, verse 6, sent from God, commissioned by God as one who would fulfill the Old Testament promise of a forerunner to the coming of the light, the Messiah, the Christ. And there has not been a true prophet of God to God's called people as a nation for some 400 years. Prophets end there with Malachi 400 years earlier. And no light, no revelation, no word from God. Remember, that's the idea, the logos with the Jewish people. They haven't heard from one of God's prophets. And all of a sudden, here comes this John the Baptist. And man, he is preaching up a storm. And people are going out to him to see what is going on. And he's saying what? You need to get your heart ready. Repent. Repent. And demonstrate your true repentance of heart by being baptized and preparing your heart for the one who is the light of the world. We'll turn over in chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They, then they asked him, well, what are you then? Are you Elijah that, that uh, Malachi talked about? Uh, and, and he said, I'm not, and are you the prophet? And he said, and, uh, and answered, no. And then they said to him, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Watch now. And he said, I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. He is quoting from the book and the prophecy of Isaiah about the coming of Christ. And John is saying, I'm fulfilling that prophecy right now about telling you about who's coming and who is here. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, verse 25, they asked him, asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming to him and he said, you want to say it with me? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. And John's greatness Jesus said, none born of woman greater than John. But I want to tell you, the greatness of John is the privilege of John to announce the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is, witness to the light. Three times he uses that typical word, martyrios. You are familiar with it, likewise, in chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Because before Jesus ascended into heaven, he says what? To his men and to us by application. You shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Witness what? To him who is the light. Those who know Christ then. To give testimony, to give witness. Final words before his ascension. And like John the Baptist then, to be great, if I can say it this way this morning, to be great along with him before God is to be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, why he came, and how he's changed your life. Sent to be a witness to the light. Back at the beginning again, verse 9, then one more truth concerning the light. 
And John is very clear on that, isn't he? In verse 9, he says, There was the true light which comes into the world and enlightens every man. John's making it clear. It isn't me, it's him, the true light. Look with me at verse 14. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the way, the truth, and the light. He's the true light. John loves that word, truth. Of the 28 times New Testament, 23 of them are in John's gospel. Just read that at the end of verse 14, full of grace and truth. 14.6, we're not going to quote it again. But look over in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 with me, verse 30. Eight thirty. If you're right there right now, could you say amen? Okay. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He is the truth about all that you want to know, most of all, the most important questions in life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And how can I prepare for eternity? He is the truth. He is the answer to all of those. He enlightens every man. Notice at the end of verse 9. Came into the world and he enlightens just a word there, a form of the word for light again. But now he uses it in the form of a verb of influence. And you can read the commentaries on this, and there's a lot of different ideas. Sometimes, sometimes, people, we can read the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, and there are times that we can say, I understand what it says, but I've got a lot more to learn about what all it means. In fact, sometimes a, a certain fact or statement or whatever in Scripture can mean more than one thing at the same time. The Scripture is so rich that way. But now don't misunderstand me. The plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things in the book. You say amen to that? Okay, so we're not lost in this. But you can read till your eyes fall out about what different people understand enlightens every man. But it boils down to two things. I don't like to do this, but I just want to tell you, it boils down to two things. And the one is that the light has the idea of enlightens every man in that Jesus Christ as creator, as light, in creation has an impact or brings revelation, general revelation, to all mankind. That's the idea of where Paul is coming from in Romans chapter 1, where he speaks about the reality that through the creation, man is without excuse. That which is known about God, Paul says in Romans 1, is evident within them. 
Or we can say, as the book of Ecclesiastes mentions the fact, that God has set eternity in all mankind. So one idea here is, and I don't like to use the word idea, one understanding is that Jesus as the light, and he's going to do that, he's coming into the gospel here in John's record, and he's impacting everyone one way or another. But the second understanding of the passage is he enlightens every man who comes to him in saving faith. That is, you come to the light you come to Christ and you repent of your sin and you trust in him. Everyone who does that will experience this light of life in him. And a strong argument for that is that in the next verses in 10, 11 and following, he tells us of the fact that Christ came into the world and many did not know him, see him, believe upon him, receive him. One way or another, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't change anything. And all that John says in the Scriptures, he is who he is. And when you come to him, he will, he will save you and he will forgive you. Can you say amen to that? Now, take your Bible and turn with me. Uh, let's go to 1 John and then to Matthew. Go with me, 1 John, initially, because John can't talk about Jesus without reminding us that he is God. God in flesh. 1 John chapter 1. We had a team of men teaching through 1 John very recently, and I'm sure they would remind you the interesting way that John opens 1 John right in chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the, what's it say? Word of life. And our word there is that same word as over in chapter 1, Lagos, Jesus Christ. And he's going to introduce us to him. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 5. And now, when we look at chapter 5, we are in the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount, are we not? Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to convey to you about an opportunity that Deborah and I had years ago. The church sent us, and what a privilege it was, to the island of Bonaire. Bonaire is one of those uh, islands there, um, uh, Antilles of Netherlands, right? Just off the coast there of uh, Venezuela, top of a uh, of South America, a, a small island about 25 miles long and about six or seven miles wide. At that time, there were uh, missionaries that we supported, the Capes, that were, did I have the name right? Coopers, Coopers, thank you, that we supported, that were with Transworld Radio there on that island. And it was an incredible opportunity for us to be there, to encourage people, to see the island. 
And one of the times they said, we're going to take you a trip all the way around the island and then take you on the mountain. And so we said, good, let's go for it. And we went around that beautiful island. Talk about intoxicating. Oh, my. It was just gorgeous. And then we went up the mountain. Well, it wasn't a mountain. It was just the high place, one of the spots on the island. And then we're on this high place on the island. They were pointing out different areas. And they reminded us of the fact that the early um, settlers of the island, very early, the community was in the lowest part of the island. And where the people settled was uh, down lower part. And the reasoning in that was that when they would have any form of light or fire or whatever else, that when ships or pirate ships would come anywhere near the island, that they would not be able to see the lights and know that there were people there and they wouldn't stop and create chaos or steal from them or whatever else. So they were down and their light was to be hidden so people would not see. Matthew chapter 5 says that's not us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. We sang this, children, didn't we, if we went to Sunday school? But on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. So, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Come to the light, be changed by the light, and be light in a fallen world. That's our task. Can you say amen to that? And would you notice in the context, if you back up a few verses before Jesus talked about being the light, he reminded the fact that his followers were going to experience difficulties in this world. And one of the primary ways that God is going to put his people on display is in the hardships, the difficulties, and the circumstances of life at school, at work, in your community, and in this world. And sometimes he will put you on display in a major way, like having you waiting for a heart transplant. And nobody loves you more than Jesus Christ and allowing you to be on display for his glory. And he's praying no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, let your light shine. Brag upon the light who is sustaining you now and is your hope for all eternity. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Bow in prayer with me. We thank you, Father, this morning as your people for the fact that you have not left us without revelation, without truth, without answers. There's a way to be made right with you. It's this Christ. There's a way to be forgiven of our sins. This Christ. Believe. Not a belief that is an intellectual exercise, 
but a belief that is anchored in him. Thank you for the good news of Christ, who he is, what he's done, and how we can be made right with you through him. Never leave us, never, never, never may we leave that is our main thing as the body of Christ here. Perhaps you're working in a heart this morning that has not come to Christ in true repentance and is able to say, I know that I know that I know that I've trusted. But the Spirit of God is working on your heart right now. And I just pray for you at this time that you would look to Christ, you would believe upon Him, you would trust in Him. And the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for your word. Thank you for light. In Christ's name I pray. And all his people said, amen.